Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever found yourself consumed with doom? I used to have a repeating dream decades ago about my own death. It was a freak accident that I won't go into. Uh, baloney? Yeah, sure. Indigestion? Probably. Maybe uh, uh, a result of a book I was reading at the time. Most likely. But it was so powerful that it struck, it stuck with me to this day. And it makes me wonder if that's how, what, you know, how it's going to be. I don't really care except for the mess I'll leave behind for somebody to clean up. But I, I figure I'm ready for my own final exit in whatever form it takes. I'm a child of God. And while there are lots of ways this fallen world might take my life, my soul belongs to Jesus. Maybe all these years subconsciously I've avoided getting myself into a situation where it might come true. I don't think so, but maybe, maybe. Have you ever had a dream like that? You know, maybe you're just one of those falling things, and you're worried about your final exit, that maybe it'll uh, be plummeting uh, to, in toward the basement in an elevator that's uh, gone awry. Uh, I can help you with that. Uh, I know you've all thought about the possibility on a particularly long ride up in an especially tall building, right? You know, the worst case scenario, the cable suspending the car, you're in snaps, the emergency backup brakes fail, and suddenly you find yourself in free fall plummeting toward the basement. What do you do? Well, I can guess what you'd do. Scream like a little girl. But what should you do? Well... You're going to be glad you came to church this morning. If your answer is watch the floor numbers uh, race by faster and faster, and then just when you pass the second floor, jump into the air, wrong answer. <laughs> See, one, timing is everything. And two, you can't jump up as fast as the elevator is falling down. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And you know it's not going to happen when you're between the first and second floor, right? Anyway, uh, when you hit falling down, the elevator can, can go anywhere from 30 to 120 miles an hour, depending how high up you were when it started. Anyway, when you hit the bottom, the car is going to come apart and the roof is going to continue its descent after the floor is stopped, likely colliding with your head. Uh, jumping up, therefore, is uh, never a good idea. The best thing you can do, for all the good it'll do, is lay down flat against the floor uh, to help distribute the impact throughout your body. Lay your head on, on one arm to decrease the likelihood of a head injury. Now, a few people have actually survived this, but uh, good luck. In 1991, Derek Humphrey's book, Final Exit, rocketed to the bestseller list where it remained for 18 weeks. The subtitle really explained what was inside. The Practicalities of Self-Deliverance and Assisted Suicide for the Dying. It's actually become a textbook for euthanasia. The third edition is still in print, and it's still a bestseller on Amazon. A 70-page uh, supplement was with updated information, and even newer ways to remove yourself from the gene pool was published in 2000. Now, self-deliverance. You know, what a way to soft-pedal something as heartbreaking as suicide. Now, we talk about deliverance all the time around here, don't we? But uh, deliverance from death, not deliverance unto death. We also add that there's no such thing as self-deliverance when it comes to salvation. No way to earn your way into life everlasting. 
Salvation comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus, who's revealed in our gospel lesson this morning as true God and true man to his inner circle of disciples. But the transfiguration of our Lord was all about life, and even life everlasting, not death. Humphrey's book, of course, angered a lot of people. It attracted the curious. It offended the religious, for whom self-deliverance was just a veiled way of saying that the book was about um, how to avoid what might be a painful, unpleasant end to a terminal disease. If you ever witnessed a friend or a loved one go through that, then you can't help but sympathize with their motives even though their method cuts against the grain of everything the Bible and the church teaches. Our lives and even our deaths are in God's hands. And maybe when we get to heaven ourselves, you know, we'll find out that's for a pretty good reason. Several other books of the same type have made their way to store shelves uh, ever since. And the issue's gotten even bigger now that seven states have passed their own laws to allow euthanasia. And also the fact that uh, more than just the suffering have put the book's advice to use. We all want to go out with dignity. We just don't always get to. Most of the times, we'd rather not go out at all. But only God knows the appointed hour. And so we wake up each morning remembering our baptisms, uh, that, that, that we are children of God and beneficiaries of his love and mercy in Christ, no matter what surprises the day might bring. And we'll want to have a will prepared. We'll want to make sure all our affairs are in relatively good order. That someone close knows where our important papers are located. We'll want to be in the habit of forgiving others continually, just as God continually forgives us. And then we should be free to live each day as if we knew it would be our last. So what if you knew you were going to die today? What would you do? Who would you want to talk to? Elijah knew that God was coming for him that day, that his time on earth was up. We have an accounting of that day in our Old Testament lesson this morning. All in all, Elijah had lived a pretty spiritually rich life. He'd stood up to evil in God's name at the risk of his own life more than once. He'd been a part of some amazing miracles. He wasn't perfect. Uh, he hadn't always been spectacularly successful in his endeavors, uh, but he persisted. There have been times when he failed to trust God like he should have and ran away from trouble, but not nearly as often as all the times he walked straight into it for God and for the sake of God's people. So how does Elijah get ready for his final exit? Well, he does a lot of walking and talking with his disciple Elisha. He has a lot of people he wants to encourage and say goodbye to. Uh, so starting in Samaria, they walk from Gilgal to Bethel. He tells Elisha to wait there, to stay behind, but Elisha refuses. Now, we're not told if Elijah knows that anyone else is in the loop, but Elisha had been told by God that this was the prophet's last day as well. Through the Spirit, he's moved to be there as a witness. He doesn't know it yet, but he's destined to take over their ministry. And being there in person right up until the end will strengthen and encourage him for that task, just as Jesus big revealed to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, strengthened and encouraged them for theirs. At Bethel, they visit a group of budding prophets. Elijah had found these little seminaries or schools to train men for the ministry. Now, uh, sons of prophets, they were called. It turns out they'd also been told by God that this was their leader's 
last day. And these young men must have looked up to Elijah as, as a hero. Uh, so getting news like that must have been pretty, pretty distressing for them. Elijah tells Elisha to wait there with them. That God has told him he has to continue down to Jericho, but Elisha refuses to leave his side. No way, he says. I will not leave you. In Jericho, they meet with another group of these sons of prophets. And it turns out that God had revealed the news to them as well. Again, he tells Elisha to stay behind while he goes on to the other side of the Jordan to meet with yet another group. But Elisha refuses again. Now, if this had simply been a test of loyalty, then Elisha had been, uh, you know, fasting with flying colors. If it was a test of his persistence, something that, that prophets needed in spades, uh, then he was demonstrating his fitness for the job. But as a witness, it will increase his faith and strengthen him for the days ahead. Think about the parallels between this story and our gospel lesson. You know, Peter, James, and John had been invited by Jesus to join him on the mountaintop. They didn't know the real reason why, uh, but the Lord did. And it was there he would be transfigured before them, showing just a glimpse of his glorious true God. He shined with a radiant, otherworldly light. And they heard the testimony of the Father that Jesus was indeed his Son. They were there as witnesses to his glory and to the Father's testimony that their faith might be increased and their resolve strengthened to meet their days ahead as Jesus' ministry would one day be placed squarely on their shoulders. After they came back down the mountain, the Bible says that Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. That's where his destiny lay. It was where he would meet his own brutal death, not on this day, but soon. And yet in spite of what he knew was waiting for him, that's where he would have to go if his mission on earth to save us was to be successful. Now beginning Wednesday night, we'll turn our faces toward Jerusalem and Calvary in weekly audio podcasts. We'll begin to look at the passion story of our Lord some of the events and the people he encountered during his own final days. Lent is a time to reflect and remember that it just wasn't those ancient sinners who were responsible for our Lord's crucifixion. Our hands are dirty too. And it was also our sins that made it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die that we might be saved. He died for the, for the sins of uh, the whole world, all the sins, for all time. That not only are our hands but our hearts might be washed clean. When Elijah and Elisha reach the Jordan, they find 50 more of these spiritual sons waiting across the river to greet them. They may have put as many as 50 miles behind them that day, visiting and saying farewell to the next generation of prophets. And so it has to be late, and they have to be tired. But Elijah's work isn't quite finished yet. In full view of everyone, he rolls up his cloak, a distinctive mantle of the, the prophets, and he hits the water with it. And suddenly, just like Moses at the Red Sea, the waters part and they cross over to the other side on dry ground. I guess compared to the parting of the Red Sea, it might not sound like a, uh, much of a miracle, a relatively minor miracle maybe, but then, you know, you try it. <laughs> God was still with him. The students are standing at a distance watching, and Elijah turns to his disciple, Elisha, and he asks, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? You know, it's like, what can I give you before I'm gone from this world? 
You know, if you could line your friends and your family and even your in-laws up and ask them the same question just before you made your own final exit, what do you suppose they'd ask for? Be honest. Can I have the house? <laughs> Where are the keys to the Porsche? I get the big screen TV. Um, what about your ATM card? Right? But Elisha doesn't ask for any of those things. He says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, at first it sounds like he's asking to be able to surpass his mentor by performing twice as many miracles, or maybe miracles that are twice as powerful. But if you consider their relationship, uh, uh, mentor to student, spiritual father to spiritual son, then according to the law in Deuteronomy, Elisha was only asking for the firstborn son's double portion of an inheritance. Uh, in short, uh, he wants his job. They were that close, and he expected to be the one to continue their ministry after Elijah was gone, the one responsible for the schools of prophets that, that Elijah had founded. He was simply asking for what he would need to step into Elijah's sandals. The spiritual power to instruct, to advise, and to defend. So that from the moment he began, his words, his teaching, and his admonitions might continue to glorify God before his people. His priorities were in the right place. The ministry was all important. But a dying man can't bestow something that doesn't belong to him, and his God-given abilities were just that. God's to give, to pass on. That's how Elijah understands it. You've asked a hard thing, he says. But if you see me as I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. You know, like faith, the prophet's unique abilities had been a gift from God. And it would be a gift if Elisha received them after he was gone. Not twice the abilities. Not twice the miracles. Elisha would do some pretty impressive things himself, but it was Elijah who appears with Moses and talks with Jesus at his transfiguration. You know, it's interesting. This is all taking place in the same area where Moses had died. You know, they're on the east side of the Jordan, across from the promised land. You know, Moses' bad idea to add a little drama to one of God's miracles in the wilderness uh, prevented him from entering it himself. God showed it to him, pointed it out, but he wasn't allowed to cross over. Moses died there in the wilderness, the Bible says, but no one knows what happened to his body. He was buried by the hand of the Lord. Now, the, the Moses, the great lawbringer, you know, died in accordance with the requirements of that law. Elijah the prophet had got, brought God's warnings to, to the people too. But he also got, brought God's promise of salvation and redemption, of a savior and life everlasting beyond the earthly grave. And so Elijah doesn't see death himself. As he and Elisha are talking in a scene more spectacular than any movie, fiery horses and chariots suddenly appear between them, separating them. At the same time, Elijah is lifted up to heaven in a whirlwind. It's a sort of prefigurement of Jesus, who would one day make his own ascension into heaven, but in his own power as true God. He didn't need a chariot. His disciples were there that day as well to witness the glory of his resurrection victory over sin, death, and the devil. When the dust cleared, there on the ground lay Elijah's prophet's mantle. Elisha went over and picked it up 
and he walked to the bank of the Jordan River, and he struck the water with it, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the waters parted. And Elisha went across on dry ground. He'd gotten his answer, and he'd gotten his gift. Elijah's spiritual father was with the Lord now, and the Lord was with Elisha as he moved on, heads off into the future. Elijah had to leave in order for Elisha to take up his ministry. It's the same in every generation, isn't it? You know, leaders rise and lead. They, they fight the battle for God, and then at the appointed hour, they sort of ride off into the sunset to be replaced by others God has raised up. Others, uh, hopefully, uh, that have been mentored and trained to, to take over for them. Elijah was taken up into heaven, leaving Elisha to pick up where he'd left off. A prophet, now in his own right. You know, our Lord Jesus, after his work on Calvary was completed, after he, he rose from the dead on Easter morning, spent the next 40 days showing himself alive to over 500 witnesses. And then in plain view of his disciples, ascended back into heaven, leaving them to take it to the next level. Guided by the Holy Spirit, they would take God's good news into every corner of the known world. Every corner. Emboldened by everything they'd seen and heard, the glory of God in Jesus himself, the voice of the Father's confirmation of Jesus as his Son. And so it is with us, right? We live our lives in Christ in full view of so many others, including our children. And we hope that covering having covered all life's bases with the waters of holy baptism, what they see in us will empower and embolden them. And that their children, and their children after, and their children after them, through the same power, that same spirit, and that same everlasting God, will carry on the joyous work of sharing Christ with the world. Meanwhile, like Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and all those who have transcended this world surviving death by faith, We'll live on in a better place with the God of our fathers, enjoying the, the, the fruits of that faith that they passed on to us, and we'll enjoy it forever. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Continue.